Welcome to Inside the Sports Car Paddock on the Marshall Pro Podcast, presented to you by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers. It is Monday, March 25th, coming off of a rather awesome weekend in Austin, Texas, the inaugural IndyCar Classic there. While in Austin, had a chance to catch up with two folks that did some pretty amazing winning of their own the previous weekend in Sebring, that being the Porsche GT team's Nick Tandy on the IMSA side, and also Richard Leitz, Ricard Leitz, from the WEC side of Porsche's factory program, who happened to be part of the winning GTE Pro effort on Friday, the 1,000-mile event there. So spoke with those two cats, good old Nick, uh, having a bit of fun with his son at the time, so we were just catching up while we had cars on track, just a little bit outside, so... And also the same with young Mr. Leet. So hopefully you don't mind a little bit of ambient sound there, but did our best in a radio room to try and find a little bit of shelter. And then also caught up this morning, as we always do, leading off with our pal, race engineer supreme Jeff Brown, speaking on two topics. One, the crossovers, and if and what crossovers might exist with the core autosport team that he represents, knowing that they are both in IMSA's DPI category with Nissan, and in GT Le Mans with Porsche, which they, of course, again, won Sebring. So interesting things there with Jeff about uh, go and no-go zones, how things may or may not cross-pollinate, and also spoke to close on a uh, request for Jeff to tell the tale of the worst car he ever engineered, and he wanted to change that heading a little bit to the most frustrating car out of absolute respect for those who made it. And we finally, we also have Jeff Siegel, who just announced a new ELMS program with the JMW Motorsport Ferrari team in their 488 GT3 chassis. So going to start off here with Jeff, as we always do. Going to move into Nick Tandy. Then we're going to go to Jeff to break up the little Porsche duo and close with Richard, who was just finishing up a day on the simulator in Germany. So Good little tight package here for guests. Hopefully you're enjoying this inside the Sports Car Paddock show. It is fairly loose. We just speak to folks that come to mind, or uh, occasionally we have teams that reach out and say, hey, you want to catch up with so-and-so, and it's greatly appreciated. We also appreciate your input here on our little podcast. Say, hey, why don't you give so-and-so a buzz, see what they're up to, or get some insights on a certain topic. So we're always looking for your input to drive what we're doing. And, yeah, we're enjoying it here. Also, if you get a chance... You might check out MarshallPruittPodcast.com. Brand new. It's been up for less than a month. Has every episode we have ever published going back to 2016 and episode number one with Mario Andretti. So everything we've ever done, even some categories broken out like Inside the Sports Car Paddock now. This is our 10th episode, I believe, I think. So yeah, building a little bit of steam, but we definitely have one central home for you. Also a place where you can look at all the various options to subscribe to get the podcasts that we put out on a weekly basis. All right, let's get going with Jeff Brown, Nick Tandy, Jeff Siegel, and closing with Richard Leitz on Inside the Sports Car Paddock, brought to you by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers. Jeff Brown, this morning, this Monday morning, is a reminder of the glamour, the main reason you and I got involved in motor racing. That's the glamour. You are sitting in a hotel room in Sebring, Florida. I hate to tell you, brother, but the race was over like a little over a week ago, but that's okay. Um, I'm sitting here in our Mazda CX-9 
outside of a little clinic where my wife is uh, inside being attended to on Telegraph Avenue in Oakland. So between the two of us on a Monday morning, uh, and I know that I just got home from the Coda IndyCar race at about 2.30, um, it sounds like we're just in awesome shape, my friend. Absolutely. I mean, it's the glamour, glory, glitz, and prestige of uh, big-time auto racing. You know, we get to do stuff like stuff like this. Um, yeah, it's. Uh, but the problem is, I think, or not the problem. The thing is, neither one of us would trade this for any other job. I certainly wouldn't. Absolutely not. You know, the paparazzi that, that gets a little bit tough every now yeah, and then. Yeah, you, yeah. you have to fight your way to a pit lane to do your job sometimes, but. Right. So our growing list of technical, engineering, strategy, you name it uh, type stuff, uh, it continues to grow thanks to our dear listeners. And as we continue to ask, please send us questions uh, through social media, stuff you'd like to hear us discuss. Jeff being the supreme expert between the two voices you hear now. And for this week, uh, we've chosen two. I thought one that would be very insightful, one that might just be fun. Let's start off with the insightful, and that is someone, we've actually had a few people, Jeff, ask if you could explain, delve into the, if there is cross-pollination from an engineering standpoint, a uh, learning standpoint, between the two core autosport programs, one being your Nissan Onrock DPI effort in IMSA, the other one being the, uh, I don't want to say quietly run, but the uh, behind the scenes, if you want to put it that way, the Porsche GT program in IMSA and GTLM that is run by core as well. So not sure where we should start on this topic, but it is an interesting one, knowing that Core is represented uh, the top step of the podium in two of IMSA's four classes. Yeah, it's um, it was a great question and and something that um, well we'll see. I think people might be a, a little surprised, but anyway. So the way it works is Core Autosport is um, is owned by John Bennett, who drives the DPI car that I engineer, and. Um, the team is run by Morgan Brady as our CEO's team manager over both teams. And it's all in one big shop in Rock Hill, South Carolina. And so both operations do share um, some resources. Um, if you walked in the shop, which you would have to have your electronic key card to get into the shop for sure. But if you could walk into the shop, um, you would see... Um, the work base in the main shop area with one side of the work bay all Porsche uh, GTLM cars and the other side it used to be two operations it used to be the prototype effort and our global rallycross effort but now that now it was shut down the global rallycross effort it's just um, the Daytona prototype DPI car on the other side and so the teams are physically literally five feet apart or 10 feet apart, you know, across the aisle, basically all mechanics working on those. The offices are set up in a similar way. There's the office for our, our, our DPI team manager, Brian Colangelo and Michael Harvey on the GTLM side. They're almost side by side. The engineering offices up uh, in this, on the second floor are all one big office where all the engineers, data, data guys, um, electronic people all sit together but we're obviously working on different programs so 
we share a lot of the general resources, um, uh, composite um, areas and machining areas and parts storage areas and, and things like that. And then we also share um, accounting and logistics. Uh, Fanny Colangelo is the logistics person for the whole team. So she's doing motels, reservations, airplanes for both operations. Um, and and Cindy, our accountant, bill payer person, is in human resources. That's all shared. She, she does both operations. So a lot of that, which kind of makes sense, would be shared. Now, on the engineering side, it's much less so. Um, Porsche has their people from Germany that uh, are working on the design and development of the car. And then Core has two race engineers and data people that actually run the cars. And the reason it's not shared so much isn't because there's some top secret Porsche stuff that's going on and I can't know about it or whatever. It's mainly because the cars are so different that there's just not a lot that, that they could benefit from us and that we could benefit from them. Might also... Uh, <coughs> might also mention here Jeff and maybe you can speak on this a little bit as well because I know that you've experienced this uh, with other factor related programs you've been a part of in the past core is very unique in that it does have uh, one brand and Nissan um, on the prototype side Porsche on the other two completely different classes but where things get interesting here while both are quote manufacturer one is indeed on the Nissan side, commissioned by the team. It's not Nissan saying, hey, we are in DPI, we are funding this, uh, and hiring core. If anything, it's the exact opposite. Uh, yet, with the, you know, the, the public presentation of it being branded as a Nissan, on the Porsche side, that is a true factory. We have hired core to be our partner to facilitate this. And this is a part that might be interesting for you to dive in on a little bit. While the folks at Porsche are awesome, there is also, with a, a factory program like that, an expectation of a little bit of separation of church and state. Meaning, it's awesome you're doing other things, Core, but we really, you know, if we show up or our executives decide to pop in and just say hello, we want them to see and understand that while there are other things going on here, there is a dedicated team, crew, space, you name it, that is ours, and it is not truly just a big old pot of gumbo with everything thrown in, and it's hard to separate the, the Nissan from the Porsche or otherwise. I mean, there is importance there on a just a business relationship level for a manufacturer to see, aha, this is the part of your business that is solely dedicated to us. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you walk in the shop, and it is there is no question that this is Porsche Racing uh, GTLM team or Porsche team or I'm not sure exactly. There's a, I think the it's Porsche, Porsche GT team. That's it, Porsche GT team or Porsche GT Racing or whatever it is. Yeah, there. It is clearly that they have um, they have their own operation. They have. Um, I, I mean, the perfect proof of that is I don't really know how it works 
and I'm the race <laughs> engineer on the other on the Nissan, and I have really no idea how it works over there. And when I say over there, I mean ten feet away from where I, you know, where I work. So it's it is a dedicated effort for the Porsche. There's um, the German engineers that are working with the core engineers. There's uh, German. Um, technicians that work with the core technicians uh, so it's it is definitely two completely different operations that share for economies of scale share the resources that are not proprietary between either one and and both operations are happy with that because it's just reduces cost and increases efficiencies actually um, but there's no you know, I have no idea what kind of suspension they're running, shock absorbers they're running. Um, I don't know. And it's really, I, I suppose for two reasons. One, it's not really my place to know. And two, to be honest, I don't really care. I'm trying to figure out my own stuff. So, But that's, that's the fascinating part, though, and why I, I was looking forward to having this conversation this week because and we can get into uh, some more the the finer on track or you know timing stand related engineering bits but you're you're mentioning that you can't really say what they're doing on the damping side or otherwise on the uh, on the Porsche GT effort that says a lot and again it's not I mean I'm sure if you walked over and asked they'd gladly tell you you know it's a, I don't think it's a question of um, you know, all right, Brown, get away from us, kind get of away, thing. But right. it no. is, but there is truly a case of yes, this these are two elite IMSA programs, run, prepped, built out of the same, you know, within the same square footage in the shop. But this is not a case where the Porsche guys are coming over and finding out what you're doing for your, you know, rear third option uh going into long beach and you're telling them hey by the way if you know when you're looking at center of pressure uh you might consider this <laughs> no 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 the con- exactly the conversation the, the engineering crossover is happens i can i mean it's 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 very basic uh gary davies who runs the 911 he's a friend of mine engineer i've known him for years and you know in pit lane we don't even pit together i mean the porsche the gtlm guys will be 10 pits down or three pits down or the other side of us uh you know with pits in between we we don't operate at the racetrack at all together we park the trucks and trailers together again for it's it's mainly so people like Fanny Colangelo has to fill up the coolers for both trailers and provide <laughs> the food for both teams. Doesn't yeah. have to run so far back and forth. Smart, but but that's it. Uh, you know, I'll talk to Gary after a practice session. Say, hey, what you think of the racetrack? And he might say, well, it was a little, you know, I think it lost grip. How was it for you? And I'll say, yeah, it was a little slipperier for us too. And and that's the extent of our engineering exchange. It's you know, we're not talking about springs and bars and arrow. We're like. Yeah, you know how was it? How was the track for you? And that's pretty much through the whole weekend. Uh, you know, if I talk to Gary, uh, the engineer on the nine eleven, twice, that's a lot. You know, and that that was another question that I had. We we see in <clears throat> single class racing. So if we want to say NASCAR and the Monster Energy Cup series or IndyCar. Uh, where there's say single car qualifying, and there may there might be a parallel here, a, a slim one. But since IMSA does 
individual class qualifying uh, in many instances. Um, you can have, say, GTLM going out on track before, uh, just a little bit, not a lot of time, but a little bit before uh, DPIs would go out. I know if we watch, you know, on an oval, say, an IndyCar qualifying, if uh, Will Power is the first car out to qualify at Team Penske, uh, either the engineers from Power's car or the other the engineers on the other couple of cars waiting in the line, those t- efforts will c- cross-communicate uh, instantly to say, hey, Will just said that this, either there's, oh, there's wind coming out of turn three that's doing this, the track is really slippery here, there's an immediate thing that they can at least try and say, oh, maybe we're going to dial in one more uh, turn of wing, something to adjust. Uh, are you even able to do that on such a short turnaround between GTLM qualifying and DPI to make any meaningful uh, adjustments? And, uh, it's not not really because the cars are so vastly different and the tires are so vastly different. Yeah. And, you know, we're both on Michelins now, but the GTLM teams are on confidential Michelin tires, which are, we're on, I think, what they call a semi-confidential. In other words, they they don't sell it to anybody, but uh, but the GTLM tires are confidential as in, you know, I'm probably exaggerating a little bit here, but a Michelin engineer does a lot not let a set of those tires out of his sight. I mean, they never go any place. They are, you know, that's the peak of the development of for Michelin. And so that tire reacts and it is different enough from what we run on our DPI car that, uh, you know, and then you're, then you have a, Rear, I was going to say mid-engine, but I think I'm still supposed to call it a rear-engine GTLM car um, versus a prototype and the downforce levels. It, you know, about all I can get from those guys is, yeah, uh, boy, it, it seems it was really sunny, Gary. Was, was it uh, slippery for you? And they'll go, yeah, yeah, really slippery. Okay, that's what I can get. So not super technical, but just kind of a, a quick feel is about it. Is there anything you can do end of day, Jeff, uh, beyond just, you know, uh, verbal stuff? Is there uh, any kind of data information to look at? Uh, anything that you might do or you might they might come to you asking about or you might offer them? Anything general that uh, you might ever find a reason to get into? That's one thing. And the second thing, maybe this is more of a Jeff-specific question. Knowing that you have engineered so many cars over the years... You are an avid watcher and surveyor of things. Maybe you caught qualifying, you know, in the hotel. You went back, you know, got a chance to watch uh, GTLM qualifying or something like that. Do you ever find yourself not invading space, not crossing boundaries and stepping on toes, but saying, hey, I noticed this thing in turn 12 at wherever it was, and it seemed like, you know, the 911 RSRs maybe did this or I noticed pick another manufacturer might have done that and it really looked like they got this thing figured out you ever get into that kind of stuff or is that just a little too uncomfortable yeah it's 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 gonna it might seem funny but it's almost the other way it's like wow okay so the Porsche guys did this I know you know I know those guys they know how they operate so I know that they're smart and that they, you know, they work at this really hard and that they know what they're doing. So if I see them do something rather than, ooh, I wouldn't have done that, it's like, 
I wouldn't have done that. So therefore, I'm missing something. Ooh. Why wouldn't I have done that? Because they're obviously doing it right. I got to figure out what I'm missing here. So well, that's a great note. That way. That's a great <laughs> note, Jeff, for young engineers. And we try and try and point that out whenever these things come up, or those aspiring to be engineers. I can say that when I was young, trying to learn to be a race engineer, and you know, working with fairly simple uh, open wheel cars, you know, junior series, and you know, sports cars, smaller stuff, there would be that little bit of ego. Absolutely. Well, psh, you know. Okay, they're doing it that way. Whatever. That's different than mine because, of course, I'm so smart and brilliant. Anything other than my way is something to ridicule. Um, I don't know if everybody or if everybody goes through that journey. Maybe it's just a, a Pruitt stupidity exclusive. But no, your but your your approach there. I'm just saying that is something that uh, any young engineer the the sooner you can get to the Jeff Brown. I wouldn't have. I really wouldn't have thought of doing it that way. Why haven't I? And then, and then again, not from a derision and question and mocking, but like, you know, it, provided the team or the people that I see doing this are ones that I know. You know, the results speak for themselves. You you know, teams that are worth uh, looking after, uh, engineers who prove themselves. Jeff, if you see someone doing something you hadn't thought of or that just seems very foreign to your way of thinking. Um, explore it. Make a make a note. Go down that route and try and figure it out because you're probably going Absolutely. to be a better engineer when you're done. Absolutely. My my first reaction is always not not why they did it wrong. It's like what am I missing here? Why, why don't I why don't I see what they're seeing? And you know that's that's kind of that's that, there's some of the benefits of having a team like the Porsche factory team with us and you know hey I'm not um, uh, I have everybody has a little bit of an ego and I hope that they maybe looked at some of the stuff that we did and went wow that was pretty clever or that was a good idea or whatever so I think you know that, that it goes both ways within core and and Morgan and John have always tried to really instill that you know the thing we do share is a culture and a um, processes and the procedures of how we do things on the management side and, and the crew side and the, um, you know, the, the team building and, and culture like a, like any good organization would have. And, and, and so both teams share that exactly, which I think is, it's really cool to be, to be in an organization with two kind of diverse areas, but everybody working in a common method. That might be another great topic for us to add at some point, uh, engineering culture uh, yeah, and ha- how you build, what you build, working, what what it's like working within a dysfunctional one. I've been a part of that. I've probably yeah. been been the root of the dysfunction <laughs> in that. But uh, again, it, it, is, it is obviously a very technical um, group. But the dynamics are no different than any other, you know, pick any other sport. It could be a basketball team. Uh, it could be the group of mechanics on the car. The the, yeah. cu- cult, the culture changes based on the discipline in group, but th- and there are unique things to what will make that cult- culture work. So that might Absolutely. be an interesting thing for us to explore. 
And so if anybody's seen the, uh, okay, I'm a big space buff guy. So if anybody's seen the new movie that just came out a little while ago, I think Apollo 11, Yeah. It, oof, there's a culture there that, that was required to do what they did. And it comes through in that documentary if anybody wants to watch it. But anyway, race teams have similar kind of things. We'll talk about it sometime. Well, why don't we close on the fun topic? One of the, uh, one of the <laughs> questions you've received was to discuss the worst car you've ever engineered. And where I love this topic, Jeff, is there's certainly a worst. Every, every engineer has a worst. I certainly have a worst, but I also have a number two or number three, so this isn't necessarily a one-time only conversation. We, we can have lots, uh, you know, and maybe also throw up front that sometimes it wasn't necessarily the car that was horrible or the drivers. Sometimes we, we are the ones where you go, man, I bet you in a different set of hands that car, that team, you know, whatever it was, right. would have had more success. Uh, maybe I was a weak link, but uh, at least for this first opening of a, of a worst uh, car I've ever engineered, what comes to mind? Well, so uh, maybe to make it a little bit easier and less harsh, I'm, uh, I'm going to change it a little bit. I know it was sent in as the worst car. I'm going to change it to the most frustrating car. Fair enough. Which, which, and as you just pointed out, maybe it's just because I could not figure this thing out. It was just, it was just too hard for me. And so anyway, that car would go to, um, and I'm going to explain why, uh, but that car would go to an IRL car I ran back in the earlier days of the IRL. And it was the Riley and Scott Reynard combination car and this was now and, and I'll first start out I'd like for anybody to list a list of any bad or anything any car from Bob Riley that would be on a worst list of anything that list would be have zero cars on yes. it absolutely zero yes and so that's why I'm going to explain why it got to this point um and I don't know all the details, but I know that was when Reynard was buying out Riley or they were combining uh, resources or, and I'm not sure how all the business thing worked out. And I really didn't care at the time, just trying to get my IRL car to go around the Indy. And we got the car and it was, uh, it was, it won Phoenix, which back then yep. was, right before Indy, I think, or maybe there's another race in between, but it won Phoenix. But it was here. here yep. From dead last. This championship winning year. Yep. Yep. People went, woohoo, wow, this car, whew, man, this thing is freaking awesome. And so my team owner, uh, it was a small team, but my team owner bought, bought one because, hey, this is great. American car, that was pretty cool too. That was, you know, Tony George, IRL, American car. It was that, that was the era when that was all trying to, you know, we had, Lola and Reynard, but let's just do American. So we had Delara, uh, Italian, and G-Force, which is British team. So here was the American. So we got the car, went out to go at Indy, and it was we could I could not make this thing handle right. I mean, it was scary for my drivers. Like, so I put a bunch of downforce in it, and it's reasonable but slow. And so we just, I just could not figure this thing out. And I had all the numbers, the aerodynamic numbers, all the CFD stuff, all the suspension 
stuff and I'm trying to figure it out. And I had run cars there in the past and, and gone pretty good with them. Yeah, very much so. So, yeah, so I'm, I'm just not getting a handle on this thing. And so we, I mean, Adrian Reynard himself is coming, sitting in the, in, in the garage with me and we're going through data and we're going through numbers and we're trying to figure this thing out. Bob Riley's working on it and, and we're just, we're no place. And so suddenly there's some new parts that show up from Reynard. Okay, we ran these in the tunnel and put these on tomorrow. You know, that's back when Indy was still kind of the month of May or at least the three weeks of May yep. then. And so new parts show up overnighted and built and we put them on and, oh, it's really not. It's a little better, but we need like a lot better. And so then the team is like, okay, well, you know, then you start, everybody starts to doubt everybody. The, I'm doubting myself. I don't know what I'm doing. And the designers are doubting themselves. And the team owners like, maybe I should have picked a different car. And the drivers are like, well, maybe it's me. You know, so it was just scary to drive, super nervous and all of that. So I, I don't remember exactly how it was, went down, but Johnny Unser was, our Robbie Unser was walking around and, you know, there's a brave guy. Hey, Very brave. Take this thing for a few laps. Robbie gets in. He goes about three laps, comes in the pits. And those were the days when the engineers kind of sat on the front wishbone and talked to the driver yep. before we had the intercoms and stuff. So I sit on the front wishbone. He flips up his visor, and his hands are welded to the steering wheel, and his <laughs> eyes are as big as saucers. <laughs> and I'm like, Robbie, how was it? And he's like, oh, holy moly this thing is scary and and so the, it, it never went good the car never turned out to be a good IRL car and in the end what had happened was that CFD and the wind tunnel so we had CFD work we had wind tunnel work the wind tunnel it turned out that the root cause and I'll paraphrase this through a lot of things but the root cause was the wind tunnel was not accurate it was wrongly calibrated so all the numbers we thought we were getting that looked good and should have done this and should have done that were just flat wrong and so the parts that they built to send out this is definitely better we bolted it on and it was definitely not (laughs) definitely worse we're like you know how can this be and and it turned out that all the work, you know, when you're doing wind tunnel work, and, and Indy is largely an aerodynamic exercise. There's a little bit of mechanical stuff, but but primarily an aerodynamic exercise. And all the information we were getting and what the engineers in the wind tunnel were working on, you know, they try this little thing and that would make it more stable and better. Perfect. Send it to the team. Nope, doesn't do that. It can't be. It just can't be. We were all confused. <clears throat> and it was all because the wind tunnel and I can't remember now whether they were they moved the wind tunnel or they uh, got a new one or I don't remember the details but they found the solution went back through it and found and then everything made sense but that was July and it was too late (laughs) and that that's a great (laughs) it's a great point too because the the working process when you are in a I guess a major event like this, so different than, you know, the three-day weekend I was just at or, 
even Sebring, which seems like it takes forever. In reality, we're on track for the first time Thursday, and we go home Thursday. Saturday night. So, right. you know, if you're having major issues uh, and nothing is making sense, you don't have the time to really do this forensic investigation. Even during the month of May, where you are locked in for, you know, a couple of weeks of practice, everyone's busting their behind but you, but you mentioned a great thing, Jeff. You have this hard decision to make, and, and maybe share some thoughts on, do you keep throwing things at it, hoping that the next iteration, the next under tray, the next flick, the next little thing that they said they're trying is going to help, do you stay committed to that, keep trying new, different, find, find the problem, versus hitting the stop button, for two or three days or who knows how long it would take to try and get to the root and see if there's a systematic thing that has thrown the ship off course that latter option other than maybe yeah. when cars were flying we're, we're, we're getting airborne at Indy in 2015 uh, and uh, there was about a half day pause maybe you know there wasn't even a multi-day stop by the series that's, I think that's almost a harder one to call because we're so used to problem-solving, never wanting to fully stop the process. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yes, I mean, that's <clears throat> that went through our minds. Um, uh, a buddy of Lazier's team who had won Phoenix with the car, they bailed on theirs the first week on their on their yep. Riley car. And, and they went to, I can't remember. I think it was a Delara. Delara, they, they did that. And so, and their team had the option to do that. Our team was smaller. We were kind of committed. We, you know, we couldn't go out and buy one of those uh, cars. Maybe we could have. I don't really know. But, but when you have, it, it, it didn't, it wasn't easy. Like, oh, we'll just go buy a brand new car. It would have been, it would have been a major, major financial hit. But, even with that, it, we really never thought about that that much. It was more like, look, I've got Bob Riley sitting here. I've got Adrian Reynard sitting here. I got Mark Scott sitting here. It, it's not like we. This group doesn't know what they're doing. Wow. And they're they're going to figure it out. It's we just we're just missing we're just missing something, some little thing we're missing here that doesn't make sense. And in fact, that was exactly true. It was just deeper than what could have we could have figured out and it took long longer to figure it out once the once they figured out the wind tunnel stuff and it all started to make sense they knew exactly what to do to make that car better and that car could have been great the problem was i think the damage was done and nobody was going to buy one or run one yeah and that was pretty much pretty much it um but again the you know bob riley and Bill Riley do not design and build bad cars. Adrian Reynard does not do that either. And so he put those guys together. It's impossible to have a bad car from them. And they were just getting bad information from their, um, from their wind tunnel, <clears throat> from their wind tunnel work. And, you know, that's a, it shows how critical wind tunnel and now CFD work is to making a good race car nowadays. And to close Jeff, we hear this every year in Formula One. There's some team that we will, we're only, you know, one race into the season, but 
we're going to have a team, well, we have already had teams that have underperformed in preseason testing that are, you know, it might be Williams, you know, we'll see which team it ends up being. But every year we hear the, the story, I don't know whether it's fully accurate or an excuse, but some sort of data correlation between CFD, wind tunnel, there was something off. And we, that's the reason why we expected it to do A in testing at pick the place, and it did B, and that's why we're slow, and now we're going to have to go back and, again, do this forensic accounting, um, uh, to use my favorite term from the movie, uh, uh, the other guys, and uh, go and try and find the root cause of where the information uh, was wrong, is wrong, recalibrate and then hopefully go through a whole new development, but not with the old stuff in Formula One, because obviously whatever they ran in January has been thrown away, and they've got new stuff. And so hopefully that new stuff, the new front this, the new rear that, will yeah. correlate and so on. But every year, to your point, there's a minimum one F1 team that says, oh, wind tunnel lied to us more and more today. It's uh, CFD. Uh, but, yeah, just amazing how... Not only was this something that happened, you know, you were referencing from 20 years ago, uh, but also something that you know, will cause an engineer and a driver and everyone within a team to question their basic skills as a professional. Uh, it's maddening. It's truly, you just go, go, please make this go away. That's it. You're, you you hit it exactly right there. You know, question your yourself. I mean, the drivers were like, oh, maybe I'll have to do something different. I just can't do this anymore. And I'm like, well, this is just, okay, I've met my match. I'm just not good enough anymore. And and you got guys like, you know, Bob Riley and Adrian Reinhardt going, well, but, you know, I didn't think I was this bad, but maybe I am. And and you know nobody really believes that but boy a, a project like that will make you doubt yourself and it was always it was nice to find out what the root cause was and um it's you know it's that old what what's the computer guys garbage in garbage out yeah and that's exactly and, and now it extends to simulation because we're using so much simulation now and it's all software based and stuff so if your sim model is off by a little bit all the answers you get are wrong and, and and worse than that misleading they send you down the wrong path so one of the huge things we do all the time constantly constantly every time we do any simulation stuff is validation validation does it validate to the real world does this answer really work in the real world and we're constantly spending time validating our results because if we can't validate them then we just flat won't even believe them and there's another topic for another episode of validation, uh, because yes. in this, it might be one of the, it might be on the surface one of the more mundane uh, subjects or sound like it. But again, this is, boy, you want this is evidence. This is truly the if you have an investigative gene within you and you love watching the id channel every night trying to find out you know the killer did this and left this thumbprint and that unlocked the whole thing you know that is yep. truly uh sim and just general any any non-on-track based testing and development work 
yeah, the validation side, it is the linchpin to either it all works or it all doesn't. It all yep, and absolutely. The, and then there's the fun part of it said it should have reacted this way. It didn't do that exactly. It was a little bit in this direction, 20% the other way. Um, do I apply that 20% gradient to everything else? that we are that we are about to test and is that a correction fact i mean so anyways this is a fun fun thing about the show jeff is it's like you and i talk can talk about this stuff all day long but please dear listeners things interest you tell us because you know as folks uh jeff you've spent your basically your entire life doing this uh i've obviously retired to do something that's a little more befitting of my skills but uh this is fun this is fun so i enjoy it any ideas you have please send them in and also here a little bit later this week, as uh, as I mentioned in my little open, uh, we're going to do this kind of every two months or so, every eight to ten episodes. Uh, we're I'm going to pull all of uh, your sections there, Jeff, and drop it into a special inside the sports car paddock of just Jeff Brown uh, Q&A, data points, education points, listen to... Uh, my professor B uh, talk about all the cool things because again we know how much just based on your feedback you really love uh, getting inside the side of the sport with Jeff so uh, not only do we still have all those full episodes with a full range of weekly guests but yeah we're going to break start breaking things off this week uh, to give you the first 10 that uh, Jeff has done and hopefully you'll enjoy that as well always a pleasure Marshall I appreciate it can't wait for next week all right, my friend. Well, uh, hopefully we can free you from Sebring at some point in time, and uh, I'll look forward to speaking to you next week. Sounds great. One more Ferrari Taylor's test on Wednesday, and um, had fun with the P3 car with uh, the new D Motorsports this last couple of days. So a yep. uh, couple more days, and I'm out of Sebring, and we'll go to Long Beach. I'll see you there. All right, my friend. I'll speak to you soon. Nick Tandy. First of all, welcome to Inside the Sports Car Paddock. Uh, I have a very simple opening question for you. How the hell did you win Sebring in GT Le Mans? Um, I mean, for fans who maybe watched the first 11 hours and said, ah, this is Ford's, it's over and done. Um, boy, they would have woken up Sunday morning with a big old surprise. Uh, had, I mean, it's a very intentionally dumb question, but... Tell us how you did win, because it wasn't looking like that at the start of the race. It, it wasn't, and you wouldn't believe how many of my friends actually said to me the next day, oh, I went to bed because it was 2 o'clock in the morning in the UK or whatever, and you were nowhere, and um, so we didn't expect to watch much, and then they worked in the morning, <laughs> and I was like, holy, won it. <laughs> but, um, no, I mean, I was one of those fans watching, you know, the first, let's say, eight hours of the race thinking oh my gosh you know we've got no chance um and yeah I mean in the end it was a bit like 12 months ago where we weren't very good in the middle of the race and it all just came to us at the end the car um it didn't exactly come alive but it seemed that everybody else's pace kind of dropped off and once we got our lap back um and once we got the, the an ultimate caution card about two hours to go um, and we got bunched up and you know we, we were back in the race it's kind of a let's say a two hour sprint between the top four five cars and yeah we managed to stay out of trouble stay out in front good 
strategy, good fuel mileage, and uh, thank you very much. Happy days. <laughs> and I'm overstating the obvious here, but was there or is there still some added pleasure in the fact that your victory seemed to shock your rivals at Ford Chip Ganassi Racing. I mean, this is, again, one of those things where I love nothing more than a uh, front-to-back-to-front type victory like yours. It's just, from a dramatic, or from a drama standpoint, I mean, something this dramatic, it's just brilliant. This is the kind of thing you're going to remember about this race for years, but can you, do you allow yourself to take any extra pleasure in the fact that you might have thoroughly disappointed your rivals more than usual? <laughs> um, a little bit, I guess, because, you know, they're, they're rivals, so you want to, you want to piss them off, don't you, by beating them, but I do, I must admit, I do feel sorry for the, for the big step trying to because they, you know, they could have one day come in and had it all the way there, landed a little bit more. They were looking old on to win at Seabrook. And in the end, they've they're kind of come away with nothing. But, uh, you know, that's not going to stop us trying to get in front of them. No, no. You're paid. You're paid to disappoint others. I said you're paid to disappoint others or other teams. So, I mean, again, you're doing your job along with your teammates, obviously, but... Yeah, th- this was just one where I asked the Ford team afterwards, what happened? And they weren't exactly sure themselves. So, again, um, just a really fun result like this uh, as we have Indy Lights cars practicing behind us. Um, yeah, I-, I love stuff like this. Nick, let's let's go back to the beginning of the race. And obviously with Porsches having a very strong qualifying, starting on pole and such... Uh, what was it about the weather or rain setup or something? What was it that did not agree with the Porsche GT team cars? Because you guys went from being up front to sinking like a rock pretty quickly. Yeah, I mean, honestly, we, we don't know. If we, if we had some idea, then, um, you know, we went through a number of things at the start of the race trying to trying to get the car. The fundamental issue is our, our chassis is not working the, the the current spec wet tires we have, which are the same for everybody in GTLS. We're not we're not working them as well as uh, some of the other cars. You know, it's, it's a fundamental grip issue, but it's not like we're missing a couple of points. We're missing between five to ten seconds a lap. So... You know, there's something seriously wrong with how we're putting energy in the tyre or how the tyre is reacting to our, yeah, yeah. I don't know, our suspension geometry or what. But honestly, we were a bit, uh, we're a bit confused. We were, we were stuck after Daytona because we, we didn't really add a lot of pace there. Um, so we tried some things in the rain at T-Ring and, and, you know, it just got even worse. So... I don't know. I think next time it rains, we might just put the car in the back of the truck and get it. <laughs> So was it just simply made a matter of the track drying enough to go to proper slick tires and just that change uh, bringing the cars to life? Because obviously you had a lot of work to do to dig yourselves out of a hole, uh, but just curious if it was nothing more than that or uh, were you, you know, working hard to try and you know, make the car better in any other ways? 
No, no, it was literally when we could put the flick back on. Back on. Um, the, the car was okay. Obviously, we get to pick our uh, drive with the tyres, our shocks, if you like. So we can go test them and, and, and pick the tyres that we, we want on our car. But the wet tyres, we have no choice on that. Since, um, well, yeah, since 2015 and we've, we've kind of been restricted on our wet weather options, if you like. But, uh, so the car was, the car was good in the dry. Um, we, we got a really good peak from the tyre, hence the, the good qualifying performance. But actually, we weren't particularly quick in the middle of the day um, during the race. Even though we got a lap back, we were still we were still dropping back. We were just lucky that um, we'd done a lot of preparation for the for the evening time. And yeah, like I say, the car the car didn't improve as such, but uh, we stayed around a similar sort of pace and a good pace throughout the stint, where it seemed some of the other guys, you know, didn't quite have the advantage in the lap time that they were to produce in the in the middle of the evening. Let's talk a little bit, Nick, about spirit. Uh, teams going down a lap early in an endurance race, not the end of the world by any means, but I'm guessing seeing both cars struggle in the wet so much, knowing that rain was possible again to land later in the day, which could have set you back more. Just curious about mindset and spirit within the team on pit lane what was going through your mind? What what did you observe within the rest of the team, either body language or just whatever? Of oh man, we might have uh, we might be in for a long day with no reasonable expectations of a positive result, or did everyone not allow one another to uh, fall in any sort of you know worrisome or, or negative mindset? Yeah, I mean we never we never gave up. Uh, we'll never give up, but at the same time. You know, we were. Everybody was. <laughs> everybody was watching what was happening and was realistic. And until sort of um, towards the back end of the race, there was still rain expected for the end, for the end hours. So, you know, we were hoping and praying that it would stay dry, but we fully expected to finish the race in the rain and um, and be just as spectacular again as we were at the start of the race. So, it was difficult to, um, you know, to keep the motivation. But we kind of just looked at it as um, stages. You know, stage one was staying out of trouble. Stage two was all about trying to get back on the lead lap. Um, and then it was all about setting up the, you know, working backwards from the end of the race. We were, we were always going to try something different on strategy because we didn't think we'd be able to win it on pace. So we were working backwards from the end, um, you know, trying to make a bit of, Difference on a, from a strategy point of view against the others. Um, so you've always got all this kind of going on, even before you look at the, the big picture of how the race is going, how the car is. Uh, from a performance point of view, the, the guys on the pit wall were, yeah, they did everything absolutely right. Again, we, we didn't have a, a single mistake in the race. All the stops were, were, were perfect, let's say. Um, there was a couple of scratches on the car, but nothing major at the end. And uh, you know that's the way to go to go motor racing, especially in uh, um, you know you, as long as you're in or around the leaders, you've always got a chance. You can always have something happen at the end, um, you know, that bunches the cars up and uh, and gives you a chance. No, you, you never give up. Let's close on this, Nick, and it's more of a general question than a team-specific question, but. If I'm Porsche, 
dispatching two cars to Sebring for the WEC event on Friday, two cars for the 12-hour race on Saturday. I'm leaving pretty darn happy knowing that, boy, we absolutely maximized the weekend. We proved that uh, both our European team and our American-based team, uh, we just want ourselves a whole lot of hours of motor racing at Sebring. What was the general spirit within the team afterwards? And, and what have you just heard or felt from whether it's senior brass or otherwise that, wow, uh, we, we really had a memorable 2019 in good old Sebring, Florida? Well, it was, I mean, the, the reception was, was unbelievable. You know, everybody was so happy. Um, even, you know, the guys within our team watching what um, the WEC boys did the day before, which gave us, you know, a, a good a good bit of adrenaline going into our race. Um, and, yeah, you know, it, 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 was, it was amazing last year when we, we won at 12 hours. It's, you know, you go back to Vysak and see what it, what it means back there. Um, to everybody that's not, not at the track, and um, is there anything that was over in, in Seabrook this time? But he was able to see what, we're, what we get up to in, in the States. So, yeah, it was really good. I think we, we renamed it the Porsche Super Seabrook weekend <laughs> for obvious reasons. I love it. Uh, well, so happy for you, mate, and just great to see the team again uh, pulling a really, really good one over on some folks who thought they had it in the bag. I couldn't ask for anything more, and hopefully fans, no matter what manufacturer they, they cheer for more than anything, hopefully a lot of folks will just re- uh, remember Sebring, and in particular the GTLM event, for you know, really putting on a show from the start to the absolute end. So. Good on you, good on uh, your teammates, and look forward to seeing you here soon uh, in my neck of the woods in California. Jeff Siegel, not only are you one of my favorite drivers, you're one of my favorite American drivers who I get to see representing the good old red, white, and blue here in America and internationally, and just it seems like if there is a sprint race or endurance race sports car event in the world, and Jeff Siegel's name isn't on it, there's something really wrong. So uh, 2019 has more of that feel, my man, with the uh, EL- ELMS program just recently announced with the awesome JMW Motorsport team. Uh, between that, uh, World Challenge, uh, we're hoping we might have some Le Mans news coming up. I said, all right, we've got to get Jeff on the phone here just to... Uh, find out about all the fun you have going on so where should we start maybe this uh, jmw opportunity yeah sure i mean that's that's a hell of an intro that's a lot to live up to but i'll take all of it so thank <laughs> you very much yeah i'm super, super super excited for this opportunity with jmw motorsport in the european le mans series it's um a long time coming a lot of work has gone into making this happen but uh you know it looks like a tremendous opportunity you know anytime you get to race a, a ferrari it's a cool thing anytime you get to race a ferrari on some iconic uh european tracks it's even cooler um, bunch of places that I haven't been, so some uh, some items to check off my uh, my bucket list. So I'm, I'm a really happy camper right now. So I'm thinking back to I don't know, let's say Grand Am GT, and seeing your name on the side of a Mazda RX-8, for example, and that being a really awesome opportunity for you. It's a full season thing, primary focus for you. I don't know if the full kind of international man of mystery plus american badass thing had had 
fully fleshed out at that point, but I guess I just think back to a time where you were locked in, doing your thing here at home, building a name and reputation, having success. Was there a plan you had or a goal you had on the back of your mind, you know, five, ten, however many years ago, that you wanted to become someone who could get that call from a British team, Italian team, Chinese team, say, hey, come be a part of our program at Name the International Circuit. Curious if it was a goal or just kind of a cool thing that's developed on its own. Uh, I, I think it was definitely a goal, but frankly, I think it was a goal that I, I didn't think was going to happen. So, um, you know, going back to the Grand Am GT days, I was really, really excited to be there because I had started, um, obviously, a level or two down in the GS class. So, for me, it was always about keeping your eye on the next step and the next thing. Um, one of the consistent themes was Le Mans. That was always a big deal for me. Um, so to try and figure out how to get experience on an international stage, um, to put your name out there so that you're one of the guys that, that could be considered when those seats open up, um, that was tricky. I mean, for as much success as I was able to have in Grand Am, in the Grand Am GT class, it, it was really tricky to translate that into uh, even the American Le Mans series at the time, because it was just such a distant paddock um, in terms of the, the faces and, and you know the teams. But um, kind of got my, my taste of it with a couple of races in the FIA World Endurance Championship in 2014. Um, they didn't go the way that I wanted in terms of results, but the experience was really invaluable and paved the way with a lot of relationships and experience and knowledge uh, to do what I'm doing now, to be fortunate enough to race at Le Mans three times now, and hopefully that number continues to grow. Um, and to have some success there, and now the the European Le Mans series is seems like a, a logical segue from there. We'll get to your hopeful Le Mans uh, 2019 participation here in a moment, but knowing that you're going to be a part of this JMW effort in the ELMS with uh, Matteo Cressoni, who's, uh, I think, pretty darn good at what he does, and Wei Lu as well, a look at this support, for example, with the program from Ferrari of Vancouver, and when I see something happening for you that has Ferrari of attached to it, it just reminds me that you have built a pretty special bond, one I don't know a lot about, but just from the outside, a pretty special bond it would appear with Ferrari. Tell us about that. What is it? How has it come about? How is it fostered? I mean, uh, I don't know. We're not necessarily saying pure factory pilot. Sebastian Vettel, you're out of the car. (laughs) Seagull's getting in. But it does seem like you've developed something, man, that's pretty special and working for you. Yeah, I mean, it's a brand that I've I've had a relationship with for a long time. You know, even when I was racing the Mazda, as you mentioned, um, Ferrari was a brand that I was working with, um, coaching drivers in the Ferrari Challenge Series, engaged with dealers and with uh with you know the the company on a broader scale with ferrari north america through some of the driving programs so um it's been a lot of years that i've been engaged with ferrari um arguably more importantly with their clients with some of their best clients via the ferrari challenge series and some of the you know the racing schools that the company puts on so um for example way is somebody that i met at ferrari's driving academy um we hit it off and he went ferrari challenge racing um, I ended up coaching him in Ferrari Challenge, and as he reached a level where he was starting to look for the next thing, uh, then we looked at GT3 racing and did that somewhat successfully last year. Now, um, you know, it's just cool to to kind of be involved with the program with Way and with his dealer in Ferrari of Vancouver to lay out plans to say, okay, we want to take this to the next level. Lamal was on his radar in terms of ultimate goals, 
Um, and when the stars aligned and we were able to put together a deal that's very much on the road to Le Mans uh, with the European Le Mans series and JMW, it, it was like a no-brainer. So looking at this lovely 24-hour race in France, your, I guess I would say, big win there in 2016 in the GTE AM class uh, representing the good old red, white, and blue was amazing. Amazing to see in person and something that I know that, you know, I'm guessing that for you, for Bill, for Townsend, um, just something that is probably going to be atop your career achievement list or one of a couple things that are always going to stand out on top there. Know that you're not ready to confirm things for 2019. Safe to say it looks like things are both headed in that direction, and if so, you think you might be in a competitive position to at least be on the podium? Uh, I mean, first of all, you know, definitely we're working in that direction. Um, so it looks pretty good. You know, a few more things to firm up, and and hopefully then uh, then we'll be there. But uh, looking looking okay, I'm feeling like my month of June could be pretty busy, which is all I can ask for at this point. But um, you know, to be in in the race is a huge accomplishment. You know, the way that that race goes, it's so difficult just to have yourself in a position to be fortunate enough to have an entry. You know, you can't just decide, hey. Uh, I want to go to Le Mans and show up. You know, you have to be invited, and those entries are coveted. Um, so it's a it's a real battle, and especially this year, there are some big name teams that missed out. So um, you know, a bit of a bit of jockeying there. Um, you know, our team with JMW does have an entry, which is hugely important, and now it's up to us to put together you know a compelling program for them. They're defending, or sorry, not defending, rather, but previous race winners of that race in 2017. Um, as you mentioned, you know, I had the the you know, extreme fortune of winning that race with uh, Townsend Bell and Bill Swedler in 2016. So, yeah, you know, we we know that in theory, if we can make it happen, we we have the pieces. Um, you know, for me to participate in the race is a big deal. But having having stood on the podium twice, having won it once, I, I want more of that. That's definitely the goal. Let's close on this, Jeff. I haven't honestly checked in with enough drivers like yourself to get an update. So not too long ago, I mean, I guess towards the end of 2011, 2012, 2013, when we knew that Grand Dam would be phased out and we would have this unified IMSA series, it was a very unique time for professionals like a Jeff Siegel, who was accustomed to working with a pro-am driver, a gentleman, gentlewoman driver, as their coach, as the pro in at least a two-driver, if not three-driver lineup, and between Grand Am and the American Le Mans series, it seemed that everybody had enough food to eat. There was enough on the table for effectively all the pros to, if not have one series that was their home, maybe even a double dip and go back and forth, changed a bit come 2014 by consolidating into a single paddock. There are a number of drivers who maybe didn't have a seat at that table anymore. What's it been like in recent years, now that we're into year four, five, six, and so on, of IMSA uh, being a central place here in the in the U.S. to earn? Uh, World Challenge as well seems to be on a strengthening path. Just from the industry, what's it like as a pro trying to find work, find security, harder, easier? What's it been like? Uh, it's definitely a lot different. I mean, the landscape has changed, and I think that the people who were expecting to keep you know, doing the same thing and, you know, and, and just being locked into rides have, have kind of had a rude awakening. Um, so I think, you know, it's been, 
it's been a few years definitely of adaptation of trying to understand the, the new rules of engagement there. Um, you know, for, for me, on the one hand, selfishly, um, since that came together and we consolidated the schedules and got all the big races in North America, you know, under one banner, um, I've been really lucky to have success there, you know, to taste the uh, victory at Daytona in 2014, first race for the newly unified uh, IMSA series, um, you know, in Sebring in 2016. So, uh, you know, for me, it's nice to have all of the, you know, all of the might of the North American sports car racing really unified in one series because when you win a race, it's it's a big deal. Everybody's there. Everybody's watching that one. Um, but it has been harder, you know, for, for me, one full season in those past few years. Um, so it's just a question of cherry-picking the big races and trying to align yourself with the right teams for for good opportunities and, and being creative, looking at the other opportunities. World Challenge is uh, certainly growing. It's a different type of racing, um, more sprint-oriented, um, so it's a, a different approach, a uh, different skill set, and something that's been, you know, a little bit of a learning experience for me. Um, and then, you know, looking internationally as well, um, trying to fill out the schedule with more races in, in different series and, and all over the all over the world, basically. So it's trickier. Um, definitely, there are there are less seats uh, at home in the IMSA paddock. Um, a little bit harder to to find a full season thing there with some of the the nuance of you know uh, driver ratings and whatnot, but can't complain you know it's just uh one of those things that changes and you got to change with it so happy for you jeff to have this continuing to take place things that are working for you and finding these new opportunities like branching out into a full elms program and just awesome to see that your talents being rewarded by opportunity and also knowing that you continue to represent us on an international stage with a lot of character and a lot of talent and these are all nothing but positives, man. So always happy to hear when things are going well for you, and glad we could find some time on a uh, early Monday afternoon to talk shop. Much appreciated. Uh, you know, definitely a, a great opportunity in front of me for this year, and hopefully we give uh, guys like you more things to talk about, uh, another opportunity to come back on the show and give you an update of how it's going with our European invasion. Amen to that. Hopefully you'll smell like champagne, too, when we have that conversation. <laughs> so, Jeff Siegel. Appreciate what you do, brother, and we'll uh, look forward to speaking soon. Mr. Leitz, last weekend was pretty damn awesome for Porsche. Uh, tell me a little bit about the weekend for you on the WEC side. Uh, I already spoke with our friend Nick Tandy about how things went for the American team, uh, obviously very well, but an amazing double win for Porsche. But I would love to tell folks from your perspective how the WEC weekend started off for you and led into the race um, well I mean I think Sebring was a, I mean pretty awesome weekend for the complete Porsche team uh, we spent 10 days in Sebring uh, starting with two test days uh, which was a very good preparation uh, even the, the temperature and the, the, the time when the test was wasn't the same than the race so for sure the setup choices we did there was basically just for the start of the race uh, positive because the race ended at mid midnight with colder temperatures so for sure uh, we were aware of this but we had two pretty good test days uh, then at the end the first practice session uh, on the uh, on the event we didn't you know drive too much because we already had the, uh, the two test days at the, the, the same temperature and we basically took all the opportunity on the second practice session which was the only night session for us 
to prepare the basically end of the race and qualifying uh, simulation stuff. And I have to say that all this preparation was uh, pretty well organized from the team and therefore really we had a, a very good and smooth, uh, uh, you know, car and, and race week. And uh, at the end with this result, uh, what we for sure hoped for, but we didn't expect it, uh, everybody is happy. I enjoyed the fact that after the 12 hours was over, Porsche had two completely different races. You had yours, which started dry, then got wet at the end. And IMSA was the other way around, where it started wet, then as it got later and darker and drier, uh, the Porsche GT team here had great success. What was it like? What was it like for you with the change of conditions towards the end of the race? And how did you find any balance changes or grip changes? Uh, I guess I ask because it was very, very difficult for the American team Saturday, at least in the wet, but doesn't look like you have the same troubles. Oh, it's true. I mean, first of all, uh, uh, I was very happy not to drive the, in these conditions where my colleagues from America drove, <laughs> because I think in the wet is pretty an amazing experience and uh, uh, very difficult to handle but obviously uh, all the uh, colleagues did very well uh, for us it was basically some kind of uh, oversteering balance in the hot condition and a small understeering balance in the cold condition and uh, towards the end with more grip on the track and with colder temperature our uh, car performed even better and the balance basically came to us and the car got more consistent uh, during the day where it was all the heat I have to say we lost some performance to, uh, at the end of the stint just because the tire uh, gave up a bit and also we were pushing so uh, you know in this competitive field it's not so easy to take uh, because if the others go you have to go as well yeah and uh, then at the end it was jimmy my teammate jimmy bruni in the car when it was wet and basically i just came out of shower from my mother home uh, when i realized it's wet and, and i <laughs> watched was the end of the race from Jimmy and was uh, quite happy when he finished the line at the first position. You could have just stood outside and, you know, put some uh, some soap and, and whatnot on yourself and just stood outside and taken a natural shower. Um, let's, <laughs> it's true. Let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about the end of the race, uh, and at least from what you were seeing, it looked like there was a pretty amazing battle going on with the BMW team. Uh, Ford was obviously farther back, but it seemed like there was a really exciting push to the checkered flag. Uh, how did you see that from your perspective? Um, well, at the end, it, if I mean, we all expected the race to be dry um, at that point, so it was for us quite clear that the BMW has to refuel and we were safe on fuel, so at the end, I think um we were you know going as fast as possible but we knew that the bmw uh will be for the next pit stop uh in the box and and, and lose time and then we have a chance to win the race um then nobody expected rain the rain arrives it was so much rain that we have to change also to the rain tires and the wsc in the past was refueling and then changing tires but yeah, this yeah. year we uh super season we can refuel and tire change at the same time so at the end, with doing the tire change, uh, normally uh, there was no time gain against the BMW because we also had to change tires. So it was like really, you know, pushing on the in-lap, risking a bit more than the BMW colleagues and having the quicker tire change. And I think our crew was around five or six seconds 
faster than them and at the end I think this was the, the, the decision then uh, yeah. that's why we exited the pits earlier than them and with the safety car at the end uh, which was caused by an LMP2 going off uh, but also with the safe decision not to restart because even the BMW uh, guys said that for sure they hoped for a restart uh, to be able to uh, fight for the victory but at the end the conditions were correct to not restart uh, we were on the safe side Let's close on this, Richard. So with your success as a uh, past champion in the WEC three or four years ago, just curious your thoughts on where the series has come, how it has evolved uh, in recent years since your championship. This, this, I guess, very successful weekend at Sebring in America was, uh, I would say, a wonderful representation, knowing that before, at least in America, here at COTA, uh, there weren't very many fans that showed up, but just curious, as someone who's you know a, a champion of the series, your thoughts on its growth or evolution in recent years? I mean, for sure, we all have uh, you know felt the the highs of WAC when there was the LMP1 manufacturer uh, active. So for sure, the, the, there was a lot of interest from from everywhere. But for sure, the GT category was a little bit on the side. So now with with uh, the GT being one of the the, you know, the series or the, the category where is the most racing going on and the most manufacturers involved, uh, it's pretty nice to be in this uh, category and uh, fighting for the championship. And I have to say that uh, in America, uh, it was already in the past uh, a very, you know, uh, good championship uh, recognized by the media, recognized by the fans. But at WEC, it was always uh, kind of only about the prototypes. And this changed a bit, so the the, the GT got more important, uh, I think, for the championship. The, they realized we make a good show. They realized we have good racing. We have a lot of manufacturers involved, which is good for you know all the drivers, for the jobs, and for uh, for you know making sure that we have uh, hard fighting, uh, hard and fair fighting. And at, at the end, I think even it's quite the same people driving, and I would say from from level of drivers or. or or it's still the same thing you have to do right to win it, you know? If you have the right strategy, if you find the correct tire, if you have the, um, the, the situation, the control, that the tire drop is not too big. If you do all, all correct, it's still the same, uh, um, the same thing to do, you know, the same uh, luck and everything you need to have than in the past to win the, the race. So this didn't change it's because also it's the same driver at the same level for me, but uh, it's just more recognized and uh, more more manufacturer involved, so there's just more interest from, from everybody in the GT category, and this is very positive. I agree. I love the fact that instead of the WEC being received as weaker or smaller or less important, yes, it would be wonderful if we had a big manufacturer LMP1 class again, but the fact that so many people recognize okay, if we can't have that, we still have this very amazing manufacturer involvement in GTE. I'm with you. A strong GTE class, uh, it kind of makes everything right. It's true. It's true. I mean, the racing always has been good. It was just not so much recognized, and now it's uh, been recognized, and I think that even the, uh, the officials now uh, are happy that uh, it developed in this, in this way, and I just hope that the next year, maybe, you know, we, one or two more manufacturers will come, uh, it would be nice to have this uh, this high class racing with even more cars, 
um, because I think it's 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 the the correct thing. I mean, from from the cost, uh, uh, for sure, we have to look at it. Stays acceptable, but uh, if you look the GTM guys, uh, uh, you have a lot of uh, people, you know, uh, competing in this category, and then you have these drivers doing the AM category, showing that they they have uh, good potential and try and come to the pro category, and it's you know it, it could work if if you do it correct and uh, you know stay focused and 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 give the GT category a chance. I think it's it's it could work. Richard, thanks so much for taking some time here. A busy day for you in the simulator and all kinds of work, but appreciate you taking time here to join us on the show. And that was your Inside the Sports Car Paddock here Monday, March 25th. Hope you enjoyed it. Like I said, please send in any suggestions on folks you'd like to hear from or think might have an interesting story to tell or update to provide. And also thanks once again to Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers for making this possible. MarshallPruittPodcast.com continuing to build that out and try and make that the central destination so you can go back and take a look at all the fun stuff we've done over the past couple of years as we are coming up to celebrate our third anniversary. Third? I think so. I don't know. I'm a little confused. Maybe we're starting our fourth year. I don't know. I'm going to get that figured out. I'm a little bit sleepy. I got in at 2am and uh, was back out the door by 8. So, uh, anyways... Don't mind me. I'm just going to say goodbye. I am Marshall Pruitt. This is the Marshall Pruitt Podcast presented by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers. And thank you for listening.